The Inform Fitness Podcast with Adam Zickerman is a presentation of Inform Fitness Studios, specializing in safe, efficient, personal high-intensity strength training. In each episode, Adam discusses the latest findings in the areas of exercise, nutrition, and recovery, the three pillars of his New York Times best-selling book, The Power of Ten. He aims to debunk the popular misconceptions and urban myths that are so prevalent in the fields of health and fitness. And with the opinions of leading experts and scientists, you'll hear scientific-based, up-to-the-minute information on a variety of subjects. We cover the exercise protocols and techniques of Adam's 20-minute, once-a-week workout, as well as sleep, recovery, nutrition, the role of genetics in the response to exercise, and much more. Hi, welcome back. Adam here. Welcome to the Informed Fitness Podcast Rewind. Once again, it's our listen back to classic interviews with high-intensity gurus and master trainers, doctors, and researchers. This is part two of three with veteran competitive bodybuilder, biomechanics expert, and author, Doug Brignoli. Doug and I are going to talk about static versus dynamic exercise, along with the proper speeds of movement and sports training. We start the discussion with the old saying, less is more. I read something that you wrote that reminded me of something that we also always talk about. You know, we say there's a big difference between what we say. Ken Hutchins came up with this. You know, are you familiar with Ken Hutchins and yeah. his work, his super slow uh -huh. technique, right? All right. So, so Ken Hutchins came up with what I consider one of the seminal articles uh, in exercise history, which is the exercise versus recreation. And I know you agree with this because I, you know, I'm going to I'm going to quote something you wrote actually, if you don't mind. Uh, it is important to understand the difference between the goal of muscular development, bodybuilding, and general fitness, and the goals which also involve the use of weights but are not intended for the purpose of muscular development or general fitness. For example, powerlifting and Olympic lifting are sports that incorporate the use of weights but are fundamentally different from the goals of getting stronger. The goal of a powerlift is to lift maximum amount of weight in specific lifts. The goal of the bodybuilder or the person that's generally trying to get into good shape and get real strong is to develop the physique to gain a reasonable amount of useful strength to improve one's health and remain injury-free. So you're, you're right there. So it kind of reminds me of, of all the things that the brands CrossFit is doing and trying to make those sport and recreational activities into some kind of fitness program. Well, and then what I tell people is it is very naive to assume that the heavier weight you're moving, the more you're loading a muscle. Right. You can actually load a muscle more with less weight based on the kind of physics you're using. So if you're using a longer lever, you're mag magnifying the weight that you're using much more. If you have better alignment, you're magnifying the weight much more. Which means you don't have to use as much weight if you're, right. if you're taking those things into yeah. account. And it's yeah, in, in, fact, in fact, let's go one step farther. I'll go so far as to say that if you are able to, lose, to use a lot of weight, it means that you're using inefficient mechanics. It means basically you're lifting something up with a crowbar, mm -hmm. right? The heavier the weight feels, the more efficient the mechanics is. If you can load your side deltoid maximally with 30 or 40 pounds, and you think it might be better to overhead press 150 pounds, then you're just missing the point. The point yeah, is, to over, is to overload the muscle. And again, a lot of weight. again, now you're involving rotator cuff muscles that just can't handle that kind of strain when you add all right. that extra weight. Right. All right, good. Another question for you. 
static versus dynamic dynamic exercises. Uh-huh. Uh, so, some people add static contractions into their routine to increase strength and break plateaus. That's the thought process. Do you see static exercise as a viable technique, or uh, is this is its application limited? Status? I think it's extremely limited. Look, there have been a number of studies that have shown that isometric exercise is far less productive, both from the perspective of developing a muscle, enlarging the muscle, and from the perspective of gaining strength through a muscle's entire range of motion. It gains strength right where you're holding it. It does. It gains a little strength in the other parts of the range of motion, but not nearly as much. So if you want strength, if you want what, let's use the word functional strength, strength through a muscle's entire range of motion, you're better off using range of motion, right? So is there a place for isometric? Sure. If you have an injured joint, rehab, then you use it as part of your rehabilitation. But this idea that we're going to do planks as the best exercise for the abs would be like saying, well, let's just do static everything then. Let's just do static wall squat where you just hold the squat position. Let's just do static barbell hold. Let's just do static pectoral hold. I mean, if it's good for one, it's good for all. If it's not good for one, it's not good for all. People like the idea of doing planks because they think that, you know, it, it, if you're a, bo- if you're a, a boxer, and you're trying to improve the rigidity of your spine against an opposing boxer hitting you in the gut, okay, fine, that's a very specific application. But dynamic tension of the abdominal muscle is going to be more productive for the same reason that it's more productive on any other muscle of the body. So opening and closing the spine, I mean, if you look at the the function of the erectus abdominis, it is spinal flexion. That's its so that, job. Yeah, and you're and you're and you're citing studies that have shown that doing dynamic ex- exercises for a muscle group is more effective for strengthening than doing the static version right. of that right. for that muscle group. It's interesting because you know statics are done all the time, and uh, you know what about negative onlys? What do you think about negative onlys? Uh, you know, I, I won't. Production? I don't know enough about that. Again, this is yeah. this is physiology, and yeah. my specialty is mechanics. Right. Okay. Um, I, and I would have to refer to studies that were done to, to know about that. Sure. I mean, I know there's benefit to eccentric motion, eccentric tension. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I would be far less critical of that than I would be of static. Sure. Absolutely. Um, but, but the reason why static is popular right now is because the industry has declared it to be popular right now. The industry needs to keep everyone with something new. Right. Otherwise, how do you bring trainers back every year to a new convention? Right. They need you to keep coming back. They need you to keep coming to new seminars. You know, it's not like the body changes from one year to the next. It's like what's good for the body this year is going to be good for the body next year. That's true. Part of the game that we have as trainers is to, again, keep the workouts interesting for people and, and make them feel gratified by the workout they got. I will say, however, that when someone says, you know, wow, I'm surprised that parallel bar dips only load my triceps with 119 pounds of load. It feels like I'm working so much harder. Well, you yeah. are working so much harder, but the triceps aren't. Right. <laughs> right. So getting back to the plank, you might be working harder because now you've got quadricep working, you've got hip flexor working. But if you the goal all your is spinal stabilizer muscles working, your spinal erectus muscles working. Right. So the question is, you know, I, if for all the work and our job to some degree is to educate these people and say, well, you're working hard, but only 20% of what you were doing was actually stuff that, that, that is useful to you. The other percent of the effort, you know, the isometric quadricep, the isometric hip flexor is not going to be as productive as the dynamic hip flexor or the dynamic quadricep. So, you know, let's let's not let ourselves be dictated entirely 
by the false impression we get by this quote unquote, right. I'm working harder thing. And because we're talking about planks, we're talking about hip flexor. And so what I wanna say is that any time that you involve the hip flexor as part of an ab exercise, you already have a conflict. And the reason I say that is because the hip flexor, the primary hip flexor, as you know, is the psoas. Mm-hmm. And the psoas originates on the lumbar spine. So when you activate the psoas, when you activate the hip flexors, you are pulling forward on that lumbar spine. Well, the objective of an abdominal exercise is the opposite. It is to pull forward on the pelvis, on the tailbone, to curve the spine under. So anytime you're trying to do a leg raise, you have one muscle that's trying to arch the spine and one muscle that's trying to curve the it's spine. Very unsafe, very unsafe, and, so you and end it's up unproductive getting, for the abs. You end up getting a conflict of interest where neither muscle gets what it wants to do very well. Look, like if you're doing, let's say, uh, you know, like a Roman chair knee tuck, where you're bringing your knees up and you're deliberately trying to pull your tailbone up under so that you can bring your pelvis up yes. toward the rib cage, okay? But the legs stay where, yeah, but the best way to do that then is, you know, to keep your legs up and then just keep just very that very short range of motion of that tuck. And that's all you have to well, do is that tuck. You don't have to have right. the legs going up and down so far. Well, but, but here's what I was going to say is um, whether you intend it or not, you're still activating the hip flexor. Absolutely. And that hip flexor is, is pulling loose. forward on that lumbar spine. Yeah. And so it is actually making the movement less successful. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you ask yourself, okay, any book that you look at an anatomy book will say, here's the origin, here's the insertion, right? Well, guess what? There's a pattern here. The pattern is whoever the anatomists were that first designated which to call the origin and the insertion, you'll notice that whatever is the origin is the more stable. The insertion Mm -hmm. is the more mobile, right? The insertion of the bicep moves toward the origin. It's not the other way around. We don't bring the origin toward the insertion. Same for the pectoral. We don't bring our sternum toward our humerus. We bring the humerus toward the sternum. Well, guess what? The origin of the erectus abdominis is the pubic bone. Yep. The origin, excuse me, the insertion is on the rib cage. So the rib cage is meant to go down toward the pelvis, not the pelvis toward the origin. And either way, the muscle doesn't know the difference because it's just shortening. So the idea that you would try to tuck, you would try to bring the pelvis up toward the rib cage, thinking that somehow it's gonna create a different effect. All you've done is just made an exercise more difficult than it needs to be with the same outcome or less outcome. All right, so you know, you, we veered off a little bit because you were gonna talk about the lower abs, not, not the hip flexors. Well, All right, so, so well, can the, you work the lower abs? Well, no, I mean- just isolate I, the lower abs? The reason, the reason I, I, I even mentioned lower abs is because the, the exercise that's always given as the one to improve really your lower abs is the, is the leg raise. Right. right? So the idea that you're raising the legs to work a muscle that isn't even connected to it is ridiculous, right? So the only thing you can sort of imagine is that, oh yeah, while I'm bringing my legs up with a different set of muscles, I'm also bringing my tailbone, my pubic bone up toward my rib cage. But if you have two guys on a tug of war and first the guy on the right is winning, then the guy on the left is winning, that tension is going to be even throughout the whole rope. It doesn't matter who's winning. It doesn't matter which end is moving toward which end. Tension is always even throughout. So you so can't you can, isolate the lower abs. You cannot preferentially low. Now, here's what's interesting. They did an EMG study on about eight different exercises, and they connect an electrode to the top row of abs, the next row, the next row. And by the way, for those people that are listening that don't understand 
the genetics of this sort of thing, the dividers between those rows of abs are called tendinous intersections. Those are essentially tendons. So it separates they, your, your six packs from each other. They've been there since birth. You can never add another tendon. So if you've already gotten super lean and you know that when you're lean, you have a four pack, you can never get a six pack or an eight pack. You cannot add tendons. But what I was gonna say is the muscle fibers that stretch between the tendinous intersections have a very, very slightly different contractile ability. So what this EMG study discovered was that always, regardless of the exercise, regardless of whether it's a cable crunch, a machine crunch, a leg raise, whatever it is, you're always gonna get slightly more contraction in the upper rows, second most contraction in the next row, third most contraction in the next row, and the reason for that is logical. Again, mechanical. The, the ones that contract with most force are straight across from the place of your spine that bends most. Right. That's why you will, no matter what you do, you can do a leg raise from here until the day you die, you will never get more contraction in the lower fibers than in the upper fibers because that is, again, genetically predetermined. The all or nothing principle. Well, it's all or nothing. The abs are slightly different, except it's still not variable. You're always going to get more in the upper than in the lower, regardless of what you do. But the fact that the rectus abdominis is anchored at the rib cage and at the pelvis, for that muscle to do its job, it has to contract in its entirety. You know, people come, like we know we've all been in this, right? They, they come to us, the first thing they say is, well, I want to work on this, and I want to work on this, and I want to work on this, and I want to work on this. And everything they're pointing to are fatty deposits. As we know, the fat loss, the fat loss switch is either on or it's off, right? If, if our body, and for those people that are not, that are listening that don't know how this process works, let's just say that you're riding a stationary bike and your legs are doing the pedaling. Your legs are doing the work, your quadriceps, your hip flexors, your calves, your glutes. Um, and let's just say that you haven't eaten enough fuel. So you have a fuel shortage that you and your muscles are hoping will be fixed, accommodated by uh, releasing fat cells. That fat isn't going to come off the legs. It doesn't come off the muscle or the, the, or, the, or the fatty deposit that's nearest the working muscle. And there's two reasons for that. One is because body fat is called adipose tissue. It is a, a form of fat storage that in and of itself is not usable yet. It needs to be converted to a free fatty acid before it's actually a usable fuel. And that conversion process doesn't happen locally. It happens systemically. So if I'm a quadricep muscle and I'm pedaling these, this it bike- It has to go through the liver first. It has to go, I, I'm gonna send out a systemic signal to the body for tiny little amounts of free fatty, of, of adipose tissue to convert to free fatty acid and then eventually enter the bloodstream and come to the working muscle, which is why we lose fat everywhere on our bodies when we're doing a stationary bike or anything. We lose it on our face, even though we're not pedaling with our face. I was just <laughs> thinking, you know, think about how many times when somebody starts losing weight and everyone says to them, oh, look, at you lost weight. Oh, really? Thanks for noticing. Yeah, your face looks so thin. Yeah. What I tell people is, look, we're going to focus on all the muscles of your body, including the abdominal muscles. But we're going to get more fat loss results in your midsection by doing leg exercises and stationary bike. And the, the abdominal exercises are not very metabolically active. Uh, suffice it to say, if you want to lose, uh, you want a six pack ab, just uh, watch what you eat. Anyway, uh, we were talking about dynamic versus static movements. And right. when, you, when you talk about dynamic movements, you're going through a range of motion. 
when you and when you talk about dynamic movements, it, it's hard to have that conversation without also talking about speed of movement, how quick right. these reps should be. So there have been arguments in, in, in the annals of exercise, of course, as you know, is that some people say that explosive movements uh, are using speed and momentum to help you train for certain movements in real life and sports. In other words, if you are an athlete and you are required to play basketball, for example, and, and, and be very quick on the court, uh, or a boxer that needs to be quick, that you should train quick. And when you're li weight, lifting weights, you should be lifting weights explosively to, to mimic that sports movement or to improve your, your, your quickness. Uh, would you agree with that? Yes. I would say if you're sports conditioning, you want to mimic your sport as much as possible. The problem is that a lot of people fantasize about being a sportsman of some sort. And then in the real world, they don't actually do it. If your idea of working out is mostly fun, then that's great. But um, if you're, let's say you're lying on your flat on your back with a pair of 20 pound dumbbells and you're gonna explode with those 20 pound dumbbells up, you're gonna basically catapult those 20 pound dumbbells up and that's gonna pull your arms up. So if your objective is to gain strength, basic usable strength, I would say always use a, a deliberate speed, not an explosive speed. Control it up, control it down. If your goal, if your niche is so specific that you want to compete in boxing, you want to compete in tennis, then you do want to actually mimic what you're doing. But uh, my observation has been that, especially in men, they have this fantasy that they want to be a 400-pound bench presser, they want to be a boxer, they want to be a swimmer, they want to be, you know, a surfer, and they want to, and there's only so many hours in the day. You know, you got to pick and choose. You can't do it all, right? True, but like, <laughs> you, you, you're not saying, however, uh, just let me just make sure I'm clear on what you're saying, because if you, we have clients that are true athletes, you know, okay, they're, they're, they, they're amateur athletes, and let's say you have a tennis player. You're not suggesting that we kind of mimic uh, with weights in the weight room uh, a, a tennis stroke just to improve their, their tennis stroke, are you? I would say that that could be part of what you do, not all of what you do, but I would definitely, if I had a tennis, a competitive tennis athlete, I would definitely work specifically on, let's say a backhand, trying to mimic some resistance on the backhand, so he's getting an improvement of power on the backhand or on an overhand. I mean, you don't want these people to go out on the court or wherever they're gonna, and then, why don't you, you just have, strengthen their? Why don't you just strengthen their deltoids that are involved in this, and and you know they're the posterior delts, anterior delts, uh, congruently, you know, according to muscle and joint function, and then them, let them go out on a tennis court and start playing tennis. That that, that that would work also, but I'm just saying that if I had a tennis athlete, mm -hmm. I, it, it wouldn't hurt to also incorporate some very very specific. I would say maybe 10 percent, 15 percent of how I would train them might be mimicking certain, especially if they have a weakness in a particular part of their game. Because it, it couldn't hurt to do it, right? Um, but if you didn't do it, they're still going to improve on the tennis court just because they've worked the muscles that are involved in that stroke. Okay. But I certainly, well, would not, I certainly would not do it if they're just pretending to be competitive. I would try yeah. to talk some sense into them and I would say, yeah, but you know, the cost benefit, the amount of investment of time and the reward you're gonna get for that. Yeah, that's how I see it. Okay, that was part two with Doug Brignoli on the Informed Fitness Podcast Rewind. Coming up in part three, we talk about balance and core training, intensity, and something called reciprocal innervation. Stay tuned. This is a good one. This has been the Informed Fitness Podcast with Adam Zickerman. 
For over 20 years, Inform Fitness has been providing clients of all ages with customized personal training designed to build strength fast. And now Adam and his staff would be delighted to train you virtually. Just visit informfitness.com for testimonials, blogs, and videos on the three pillars, exercise, nutrition, and recovery. Thank you.